everyone and welcome back to the Music History Project. Today you're going to hear a full interview from Marcus Ryle. Welcome to the Music History Project. We're your hosts. I'm Mike Mullins. Dan Del Fiorentino. And Michelle Shedler. All of our content comes from the Oral History Program, which is sponsored by NAM, the National Association of Music Merchants. And that is a collection that is over 3,500 interviews and constantly growing. If you want to check out any of our content or any of our other interviews that aren't featured today, please check out our website at www.nam.org library. Hey guys, this is a exciting episode where we're going to be playing our full interview uh, recorded in 2007 for the NAM Oral History Program with one of the great inventors of our industry, Marcus Ryle. Yeah, really cool. He's uh, definitely made his mark in the industry, um, inventing some of the coolest little gadgets that have come into the products industry. And... He's a really nice guy. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we say that a lot maybe on this podcast, but how blessed we are to have a great friendship with Marcus, who's helped us with numerous interviews over the years. He just really gets a passion for the industry and gets why we want to document it. So um, he's uh, one of the kind, and we uh, really appreciate his friendship. And now we get to hear and uh, share with you some of the amazing aspects of his brilliant career. And as Mike said, some of the great innovations that he's given us over the years. What's really cool about this uh, interview program is that we get to sort of start at the beginning and hear a little bit about how their passion uh, for music developed and what uh, options they had as far as access to do what they wound up doing. And what I love about that is hopefully uh, that segment of these interviews can be of great inspiration for others who are out there wondering what they can do in music and the audio world. And uh, here's a really great example of what you can do. He certainly has made his mark, as Mike has said. So uh, let's listen to Marcus's NAM oral history interview. Hey, Marcus, thank you very much for taking a few minutes. I do appreciate it. My pleasure. One of the things that's very interesting to us is how people got mixed up in this industry to begin with. Can you tell us a little bit about your own background? Where did you grow up? Well, I grew up in Los Angeles and um, just from a very young age had a, an interest in, in music, had an older sister and cousins that, you know, would bring bring the latest records in. I think about six years old I decided I, I had to be the next Mickey Dolans and um, uh, my mom let me start out with drums but that lasted about a month and she couldn't take the racket so switched over to piano and took piano lessons for uh, for about 10 years. I, I studied piano. Obviously I was studying classical music but just always interested in what was going on with music at the at the time which for me is a you know early teen would be in the, the 70s and got uh, attracted to progressive rock and some of the great uh, keyboard players of that time like Keith Emerson and, and Rick Wakeman and um, you know the the poss possibilities that new sounds presented for music was just something that then uh, with with the real growth of synthesizers just fascinated me from an early age 
from Switched On Bach and, and all those uh, classic synthesizer records, I was determined to figure out a way how, to, how I could get a hold of one. And um, so uh, saved up my money, bought an ARP Odyssey back when I was about 12 or 13 years old. And, um, and uh, that kind of got me started on the technology side of it because immediately was interested in seeing if I could make it do things it wasn't designed to do. And, and uh, first time you take apart a synthesizer and then put it back together and it doesn't work, you realize you're going to have to learn a thing or two about technology. So um, it really just started out as an early passion in music and technology that, uh, that grew over time. And that hobby's been with me ever since. Well, you ran over a few things that are very interesting to me. First of all, how did you afford <laughs> the synthesizer at well, an early age? You know, I uh, I had uh, had a paper route. Would would uh, babysit. I I remember, you know, back in the day, you'd you know, like the back of comic books and stuff. You'd see that you could you could go door to door, like selling seeds for vegetables and flowers and stuff. And I would just go and do. Uh, do odd jobs and and wash cars and and uh, I was I was a pretty savvy shopper that that helped too uh, you know back then the the recycler was was the big classified newspaper in in the LA area where people would be selling used gear so you know you'd find a uh, try to find a good deal and and um, you know as that grew quickly and my learning technology because you could find the the best deals were when you'd buy something that was broken so you could buy something broken and fix it and resell that and kind of parlay that up till you could get what uh what you wanted that's how i eventually moved from an arp odyssey to an arp 2600 and you know, bought hammond organs and <clears throat> started growing the the keyboard collection and and then you know into guitars and amps and Whatever else you need, and then cool. and then gigging. Of course, I started started playing, uh, started in bands at thirteen, and and uh, actually got paid for a few gigs at thirteen. It took a little while before uh, things things grew where I could make some additional money there too. That's very cool. Mm -hmm. But where did the idea of being able to manipulate the sound or even get into taking apart a synthesizer? It seems to me that most people who buy them never think about that part of it well i think um you know the just the exploration of sound um it's just something that again fascinated me from an early age you know different people have different kind of uh inspirational moments in their life you know the first time hearing a great synthesizer record um you know it was just such a such an inspiration of what where sound could go so of course the initial thing, like most people, was just just exploring what what the synthesizer could do was already a, a real wide range of, of capabilities. But um, it starts out fairly simply, and something like the ARP Odyssey, which was a more affordable synthesizer for its time, um, it by design was somewhat limited in what could be routed where, and a. Uh, you know, the more advanced synthesizers, you could patch anything to anything. So you just being aware of, uh, you know, some of the aspirational synthesizers that I would have liked to have owned would inspire 
um, interested in you know, seeing how I could make what I have do more than it does. So initially, it wasn't necessarily um, some stroke of, of genius to invent something that had never been done. It was more uh, basic necessity, just trying to get more out of what, what I could afford to have. So as a player, what sort of stuff were you doing? You're, were you writing your own things and trying to come up with your own sounds, or were you trying to emulate other sounds that you were hearing? Well, some of both. You know, definitely, you know, the hero worship was a big part, trying to do, do anything Keith Emerson could do. Um, and and exploring, exploring new sounds was, uh, was just something I was always interested in doing. I managed to convince my dad that, that um, he really needed a, a four-track reel-to-reel tape recorder, not just a two-track, you know, and the TAC uh, 3340 series was out at that time. So, you know, four-tracks would be really good to have. So, uh, so he, I think he knew what I was, what I was up to, but he did, uh, did decide to get one. So, you know, early on able to play with sound on sound and layering synthesizer sounds on on top of each other and it's just a lot of fun. <laughs> it is fun. Tell me a little bit about, you were talking about the Odyssey and then the 2600, is that the progression that you had? Because there's a big difference between what you can do as far as sound. The 2600 yeah. is much more um, free, you, know, yes. you, can, you can do a lot more. Much, much more versatile. Sounds. Yeah, that, I mean the 2600 you know, open things up quite a bit because of the patch cords, and you could you could uh, connect connect things together, and you could connect stuff from the outside world with that as well. So you know, uh, you know, hearing something like uh, what Pete Townsend did with "Won't Get Fooled Again," you know, having an organ going through a synthesizer with a filter sweeping and and uh, an LFO doing the rhythm, you know connecting up the different keyboards to it, you know, had a lot of fun with that. But it was still monophonic synthesizer days. And um, that, that all changed for me actually with my first NAMM show, which uh, was, uh, I have to say, I don't think I got in completely legitimately. Um, I was 15, I'm pretty sure it was 1977 January show. It was at the Disneyland Hotel. Um, so it hadn't, expanded to the convention center yet so Disneyland Hotel and um, and uh, somehow I managed to talk my way in it without having the, the quite the right credentials and I think that was the show that Dave Smith was showing the first Prophet 5 so I saw the per the Prophet 5 and that uh, that changed everything you know that's from that point I had to have a polyphonic synthesizer had to figure that out somehow. What was going um, through your head when you saw that? Tell me a little bit about that. Oh, I just, I just thought it was, it was brilliant, you know. Um, it was just the, the sound possibilities and being able to play polyphonically on a synthesizer um, in that way. I mean, it wasn't, the, it wasn't the first polyphonic synthesizer, but it was the first to be as comprehensive in how much you could program. It was the first that was controlled by a microprocessor. And, um, you know, in its most simplistic since you could say it was it was five mini mogs, you know, all at the same time, and uh, so I remember immediately being struck by how great it sounded, and also, you know, just uh, an instant desire to figure out how does it how does it work, how does it 
how does it do that? You know, and that uh, that definitely sent me down a, a path that led to, well, three years later, I was working at Oberheim. And that's my kind of my official start in, uh, in this industry as a designer. Wow, that's incredible. You were pretty focused on, on this, weren't you? Yeah, you could say that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was, um, you know, for me, my interests from an early age were, it was music and technology. You know, it was uh, music, electronics, and computers, which computers were kind of, it would be viewed as a, maybe a little different thing than technology or, you know, electronics at the time. And it was, but um, it's also fortunate that my, my dad is uh, a, a pioneer in the computer industry and, you know, exposed me to a lot of that at an, at an early age and, and bought an early Apple II when that came out. So I was quickly, you know, teaching myself how to, how to program on it and make it do little bleeps and bloops and, um, you know, get into what, how computers might, might be involved in making music. So that world was, was everything for me. And at that time, those would be the areas that you're probably least likely to get um, much um, influence at school in, which uh, was unfortunate for me. And so I, I, uh, I wasn't the best of students in terms of my attentiveness um, because the main subjects I was really interested in were not the things that were, were offered. I, I did take some music in, in school, but I'd, I'd already had uh, you know a lot of years of classical piano with a great teacher who taught lots of music theory and so on. So, um, uh, so I was doing a lot more stuff on the side and uh, and decided to leave high school when I turned 16, so I could pursue pursue this passion more. Um, and then went to Cal State University Dominguez Hills. Primarily at the time because they had just opened a new recording studio and synthesizer lab, so uh, that was, gave me an opportunity to to really dig into the using the gear. I practically lived lived there in the lab, and and take a, a physics class here or a computer class there, and and uh, try to fill in some of the holes of my self-taught education. And Tom Oberheim came to guest lecture once uh, at the university. And um, yeah, I, I met him, and it really hadn't occurred to me at, at that time uh, to to get a real job. <laughs> I was uh, I was actually getting paid at the university at the time, which was great because again, I practically lived there in the lab, so they started letting me teach labs and and uh, and and help out around the school in the with all the synthesizers and and recording gear. And um, and Tom came and did a, a guest lecture and. And, and we were chatting, and the next thing I knew it, he, he offered me a job. And uh, how old were so, you? 18? I just turned 19. Yeah, when uh, <laughs> so summer of, of 1980, um, and uh, that's a little bit Nam related too. I remember I met with him uh, it was probably in June, and uh, and he said, "Well, you know, we think we might have a position." for you. I mean, he was basically kind of creating a new position. At the time, kind of the engineering department of Oberheim was really just Tom Oberheim and Jim Cooper, who's another uh, industry veteran who's done some great stuff. Um, and, 
the marketing department was run by Russ Jones, another industry veteran and uh, early mentor for me. Um, and they were trying to look to how to kind of fill in the gap, have someone who was technical but was essentially a customer, understood the market and why these products should exist to kind of help guide where the products would go. And uh, so he wanted to create this position, but he said, you know what, we're going to this the summer NAM show. I need to see how that goes. See see what kind of orders we get and stuff, and we'll decide after after the show um, if uh, if we can hire you. So so it was in July July of '80 after the show. Tom called me. He says, "Yeah, well, you can you can have a job." So that's uh, so. What was your first impression of Tom? Oh, Tom uh, was uh, really he was great. Uh, a great mentor to have, you know. He was, uh, you know, very giving of of his knowledge and, uh, you know, talking about the, the history and all that stuff. And you know, as a nineteen year old, this was, you know, at that time, I would have paid them to to work there. You know, I didn't get paid a lot, so it didn't go that much the other way. But I was nineteen. I was I was thrilled um, to be there and. Uh, you know, so it was fantastic to hear from him and from Russ and from Jim, you know, get kind of quickly caught up on the history of, of, of their stuff. And they had, uh, the OBX was the most current synthesizer at that time. And uh, actually it was, you know, in order for me to get familiar, Tom, Tom quickly agreed it'd be a good idea for me to have an OBX to play with. So that was kind of that, that stretch between seeing the Prophet 5 and owning a polyphonic synthesizer, that, that's how that, that part got fulfilled, because now I had a, an eight-voice polyphonic synthesizer to play with, which was uh, huge fun. <laughs> where, where do you put uh, Tom as far as the history of the synthesizer? Well, I think Tom was a real influential uh, person in, uh, in the world of, of synthesizers. Clearly, you know, before him, you know, Bob Moog is 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 a, a huge icon, and and others were were doing uh, doing great synthesizer things. Alan R. Perlman, ARP, Buchla, um, and Tom. I believe you know he originally started out as a as an ARP salesman, and was doing modifications on ARP synthesizers, and that kind of was the happenstance that got him into actually being a manufacturer. But um, I think he was, uh, you know, he was really good at, at collecting a great group of people. Jim Cooper was a, a brilliant hire of, of Tom's who did the, the synthesizer voice, you know, the original Oberheim four voice and eight voice synths, um, designed those oscillators and, and filters. And, um, and he continued to, to just grow a good team of folks who who shared this passion in uh, in making making great sense, and uh, so yeah, and you know, and he he made some great sense. So it's yeah, definitely definitely a key key uh, influence in the the synthesizer world. And on you. Oh yes, absolutely. So on what me. was your first uh, role there? What what did you do? Well, so. So I started out it's with this kind of uh, nebulous job description. Talk with the 
the sales guys, the marketing guys, and Tom and Jim, and try to connect the pieces together. Um, they were already working on the OBXA, which was the follow-on to the OBX. So my initial contributions would be, you know, were relatively minor. Boy, it'd be great if, you know, you could, when you split the keyboard, you could transpose the, the keys differently and how about a, a separate LFO for the, the benders so you don't have to waste the one that's dedicated to each voice. And just, you know, fairly small stuff. That in the, the OBSX. But quickly, um, uh, I, was, I was interested in sequencing. And um, they had a, a what they, I think they just called it the parallel interface, or maybe it was actually called computer interface. Um, it was a 37-pin connector uh, that they'd put on the back of the OBXA um, with the idea that someday, you know, that would, it would allow some type of external control over the synth. I don't know if there was a clear picture of what it, what it could be, but one idea was to potentially do a sequencer. So um, for some reason, Tom let this kid loose on what well, design a sequencer. And uh, you know, you have the really good fortune at that time of not knowing what you don't know. And so I just said, sure, you know, I've been studying microprocessor books and and uh, you know, looking at the code of the existing products and designed the the DSX, which was the, the first polyphonic sequencer for Oberheim. That was, you know, pre-MIDI days. Um, so it was really the first time you could have this box that would could play all the the sounds of uh, in the synthesizer, change sounds, and it had eight control voltage and gate outputs as well, so you could control other synthesizers. I think it was the first sequencer with that could do quantization and multi-track use of what what's fairly commonly uh, seen as the norm for for MIDI today. And when so you say control other synthesizers, how did that work? Well, you said you had 16 jacks on the back. So, you know, these control voltages and gates, if you had some, you know, additional monophonic synths, if you had a Minimoog or ARPS or whatever, you could hook these control voltages and gates up to other, other synths and uh, play them from your Oberheim keyboard. Um, again, since it was, was pre-MIDI, there wasn't a way to control other synths from one place before that. So um, you could control them there and sequence them, have them playing different parts than your, your uh, Oberheim was playing. So that was Marcus talking a little bit about how he got into the industry. Now this one is a little bit more than I understand. Um, I'm, I'm not so up on synthesizers and MIDI as much as I would like to be. Could you give me just a really brief explanation? Like I'm five. Well, yeah, synthesizers can be kind of complicated and MIDI. It's basically just MIDI is the language that these synthesizers are speaking, and it's a way for them all to communicate. That's really all you need to know to understand the basic concepts of how synths and MIDI works. And um, it's interesting you bring that up because in just a little bit, I think the next segment of this interview, uh, Marcus is going to be talking a little bit more about the woes of MIDI and sort of how it got started. Uh, we're very proud that... Uh, the MIDI organization, or the organization of MIDI, I should say, in bringing all the different companies together to get on the same page took place at a NAM show. So we like to pat ourselves on the back that we played a little role in um, 
the uh, the early days and early stages of MIDI. Uh, but as Mike said, it was it's basically a language that allows different synthesizers to talk to each other, even if they're made by different manufacturers. So that in the old days, like poor Herbie Hancock had to hire people like Brian Bell to take all the wires out of his 20 favorite synthesizers to get them to turn on and off at the same time so that he could play multiple sounds at the same time or during the same song. Uh, then the guy named um, Don Lewis came along and uh, created a thing called Leo, which is uh, still housed on display at the Museum of Making Music in Carlsbad here at the NAM headquarters. And Don came up with the idea of being able to do that in one unit um, even before MIDI. So all of those were kind of predecessors. And then people like um, Marcus really watched the need develop as the synthesizers became more and more complicated. You know, it wasn't just turn on and off. Now, you know, there's envelopes, there's different tone switches, there's all these different things, envelopes and so on, that can manipulate these sounds electronically. How can we manage that as these become more and more complicated? So while working with Tom Oberheim, he was really, as we just heard, really starting to learn what are the the real challenges here and um, really getting a, a bit of an understanding as what can be done as far as programming goes. And what's amazing to me about this is six or seven other people were doing the same thing in their own little world sort of at the same time without knowing it. And I think that's another reason why MIDI hit so hard is that it wasn't just one product by one company. It was multiple people working on the same problem in their own way, in their own garage. So, uh, and then we'll hear a little bit more about that, especially as we talk about synthesized controllers and stuff like that. But, um, you know, when I listen to Marcus, I just think how lucky we are as an industry to have this guy on our side, right? You know, when you're, when you're watching baseball, your team, even if they're not your favorite team, you think, man, I wish that guy was on our side. And that's, I think, how I feel about this guy. You know, he's just so brilliant, so approachable, and so let's roll up our sleeves and figure out how we can do this kind of thing. And as a result, our whole industry changed right, sort of right in front of him, uh, especially with ADAT, which we'll be talking about a little bit later on. I mean, revolutionary products coming out of this guy's mind and helping all of us. Cool. So let's just jump back into the interview with Marcus Ryle. And uh, at the same time, we, we were developing the DMX, which was Oberheim's first drum machine. And, um, you know, I think that what we then called the system uh, was really the first, first of its kind where you could have a drum machine and a sequencer, and they would just hook together with a quarter-inch cable, and they'd be synchronized together. And both could quantize, and you could control the eight voices of your Oberheim and up to eight voices of external sense, and you had these digital drums. And that, that system, again, that, that pre-MIDI days, that, that was the, really the first time someone could sit and, uh, you know, a songwriter could compose, you know, put a little drum rhythm in, play a bass synth part, play some other things and have it all, all, uh, all right there in, in front of them. Um, and that, uh, you know, that became a, a big success for Oberheim with a lot of songwriters and, and artists uh, in the uh, early 80s. 
Yeah, and you can start to hear some of those um, pop recordings too, where mm -hmm. there's a blend of those different synthesizers. Yeah. Is, yeah, fun to hear. Yeah, in fact, I, you know, you can, equipment, the gear of our industry has played such a crucial part of just shaping music, musical trends. I mean, clearly the musicians and the artists are who make the creative use of these tools and decide there's something that's that's interesting. But they need they need these tools to do something new. That's really the whole history of music, you know? When the saxophone was invented, composers started experimenting, well, what does that sound like in the orchestra? And, you know, and the same thing continues to happen today. And, you know, when the Oberheim system came out, you had songs like uh, the Pointer Sisters' Jump, um, which was, that was Oberheim Drum Machine and Sequencer. That pretty much the whole basic track is that system. And it was even uh, co-written by uh, an Oberheim employee at the time named Steve Mitchell. Um, and uh, there was all kinds of songs like that. The first recording session I did was for an Olivia Newton-John song called Heart Attack. Um, and uh, that was done entirely, you know, rhythm section on the, the Oberheim system. What's it and like for you to hear that? You oh, it's... Studio, hearing, you know. Oh, it was, it was great fun. I mean, really, it's the... It's, I, for me, again, the whole motivation why I've been interested in the technology. It's simply a means to an end. It's really about the creative process and making music. And so to hear those tools get get used, you know, in real recording. It's just fantastic. If I could back up just a little sure. bit about with, with the sequencer. Did yeah. you have to, how much uh, did you have to know and then manipulate the actual guts of each of the synthesizers to make them work? Well, at that time, you know, what was great is, you know, Tom and Jim had laid the groundwork with the, with the synthesizers in that, you know, the OBXA with this computer interface, basically I could, the way it literally worked is an external processor could take over the processor that was in the synth. And, um, you know, it was a, it's a thing called DMA, direct memory access. It would, it could, for a split second, actually stop the processor and go in and change uh, values in its memory, right? And I mean, it's kind of archaic by today's, um, you know, methods, but um, it was designed that way to be the most versatile since they weren't sure what you might want to do. Let's just make it so it can kind of take over the whole brains. So to make a sequencer play, literally you'd, you'd uh, you know, kind of put the synthesizer to sleep for a fraction of a second and change memory locations that would fool it into thinking a key was pressed. So the synthesizer didn't know the difference between the sequencer telling it, you know, play middle C or you played it on the keyboard. It just sees that memory location, which is where the keyboard scanning algorithm would say, here's the note, now has a note in it. Or, you know, change what sound you have. You know, you could change parameters and so on. So. Um, I was manipulating the, the control of the synthesizer, but the actual synthesizer itself was all what's called digitally controlled analog. So it was all analog synthesizer voices that the microprocessor would control. I mean, really inspired by the architecture that Dave Smith started with the Prophet 5, it being the first to have it be digitally controlled analog. Um, so the sequencer really just kind of took over the brains on at 
periodic times to to fool the synth into playing playing notes. That's very cool. Good explanation too. I get it. Uh, cool. That's cool. So, um, did MIDI sort of screw that up in some respects? <laughs> well, MIDI. No, MIDI was a great logical extension. You know, to to again achieve the the outcomes you really wanted to have. And um, it's it's funny the so now we're talking about 1982 or so. Dave Smith came down and we had a meeting with Tom and myself and Dave, and which may sound a little strange, right? Because at that time, right, the two biggest synthesizer names for that pretty small industry was Sequential Circuits and, and Oberheim, you know. Even, you know, and there was still, the, the Japanese synthesizer companies, you know, Roland and Yamaha were doing a little bit of stuff, but it was still in their infancy of synthesizers. And Moog had been around a while, but they, they'd gone through some, you know, change of ownership and, and turmoil, so. Um, and as did ARP, you know, ARP with the, they had their troubles and change of ownership. And so, you know, sequential circuits and, and Oberheim were the two doing these microprocessor controlled analog synthesizers and were, you know, technically fierce competitors. But it was, it was such a small industry. And one of the things I, I valued so much about being able to get into it at that time is, You'd walk around a NAMM show, and all your competitors—they're—they're they're all your friends. You know, you—you you can all relate to the same challenges, and everyone is really just trying to—to to create great tools for making music. We're after the same ends, and if someone else designed a great product, you'd say, you know, hats off to you. That's—that's that's awesome. You know, and it might inspire you. And so Dave—Dave Dave had this idea. He called it originally the. USI, I believe, Universal Synthesizer Interface. They had done their first sequencer in their first Prophet 10. It was a, a little box in the keyboard, just to the left of the keyboard. And you could do a simple just record and playback. And they had done internally a serial interface between that and the main microprocessor. And it would just tell it. So it was, it was in a way, it was more elegant than how we were doing it at Oberheim in that it would simply tell the other processor, play middle C, play the, you know, tell it what notes to play over just a serial interface instead of 37 pins on a big cable. Um, and uh, he thought this could be, you know, useful as a standard. So he came down and, and met with us, and uh, it was classic Dave. He said something like, you know, if Sequential and Oberheim do this, everyone else will just have to do it. Because we're the, the two big synthesizer companies. So what do you think? So we, we talked about it and we said, seems like a good idea to, to do something like that. Um, so uh, Dave and I went to Japan in October of 83 and met with uh, a handful of the, the technical folks from some of the, the main Japanese companies at the time. I think it was uh, you know Yamaha, Roland, Casio, Kawai. Not sure who else. It wasn't too many, too many folks. And and uh, you know all these competitors. We sat down and just kind of hashed out. Well, what are the? So if we agree, it'd be cool to have synthesizers communicate. With the initial basic goal of just you know you should be able to play on one keyboard and it should be able to play other synthesizers. You know that was the most logical way to layer sounds. You know and folks like Rick Wakeman were always 
playing like this, had all these keyboards all around them, you know, why not be able to play them from one, one keyboard? And um, we debated, you know, well, parallel versus serial, what kind of, you know, connectors would make sense. And uh, my biggest concern at the time was the, the speed. Dave's original proposal was at 19.2 kilobaud. And one of the advantages we had with our parallel interface was how fast we could um, make notes happen. So we did manage to up it to 31.25 kilobaud uh, in the end. It still, still was a little slow uh, for my taste, but it, was, uh, but it was fast enough to get the job done. And then from there, you know, Roland really stepped in in a big way and did a lot of work to, to refine the specification. I think we next met in January 84, NAM show, as a larger group. And, uh, and then sequential circuits and, uh, and Roland, I think it was Roland's JX3P, and sequential circuits Prophet 600 were the first two um, MIDI since, and I think it was January 80, let's see, maybe I've got my dates wrong. You know what? We went to, it was 81, October 81 we went to Japan, and, and, uh, and I think it was January 82 was that first meeting, and it would have been, I think it's January 83 was the first time Prophet 600 and JX3P, they got together and hooked up the cable and played and and it worked, and what was uh, that first MIDI Japanese was born. Meeting like, sorry. The, f the first Japanese meeting? Uh, it was great, it was very cordial. I remember, you know, I was, it was 81, because I, I do remember I was 20 years old, and I, I was a little concerned, and at the time, you know, my concerns about the speed of MIDI and so on, I, I kind of had the feeling that I wasn't taken quite as seriously as, as some of the more senior technical folk that were there. Um, uh, but, you know, again, there was a great deal of professional courtesy among the, the group. Dave's vision, which was really right, is if this is going to work, it just needs to be an open standard. If everyone does it, you know, you'll have this great interoperability. So we wanted everyone on board. Um, and I don't, I don't recall at the time there being any, any issues. I think, you know, Roland was doing, they had a, uh, what was it called? DB something, the digital, there was some Roland digital bus. So they'd been experimenting with some communication protocol, you know, and Oberheim had ours and sequential and so on. So people knew it was going this way. And I think, um, you know, this was largely a group of technical people. So I'm sure on a pure business standpoint, there were, must have been some people kind of worried, well, if we all, you know, if we make everything compatible, what are we, what are we going to give up, right? You know, having things proprietary are, uh, you know, you've got more control over stuff. But on the, the technical side, I think all the technical leaders thought, no, this would be, this is just a really good thing to do. So let's, let's do it. Ironically, Oberheim was viewed publicly at that time as kind of late to the party because although we'd been involved in the discussions all along, I remember Bob Moog did an article for Keyboard Magazine when MIDI was first launched. And, uh, and I remember teasing him about this a bit after the fact, but he interviewed me as well for the, the article. And I felt I was a little bit misquoted because um, uh, essentially 
at Oberheim, we were taking a little bit of wait and see because our parallel interface was quite popular. It, it did some things MIDI couldn't do, and it was working. We weren't going to abandon that. And we basically said, you know, we think MIDI's cool. We participate, and we'll, you know, if it's if it catches on, we'll uh, we'll jump in. And I also mentioned it's it's a little slow, so I got uh, I got kind of ribbed for that um, back then. Later, got vindicated. So, uh, but uh, you know, we we um, it really wasn't that long before we came out with the the Oberheim expander, which many people viewed as kind of the first real serious MIDI implementation where now it was truly multi-timbral, multi-channel, and we had to kind of help define a lot of what was ambiguous in the MIDI specification of, you know, mono and poly mode and omni and so on to, to take advantage of all the things it uh, could really do. And that came out in 84, so we weren't really that late to the party all in all. But um, well, that was a real defining moment as far as people. I think even Dave said he looked at that Oberheim product and said that's the definition of MIDI. It was redefined a little bit more clear than even the earlier ones. Well, that's that's nice of him to say. Yeah, that was that was uh, definitely again. It was it was necessity. You know, we wanted to have something that could, you know, uh, really be you know much more versatile than what you were doing with synths at the time. And, uh, you know, we had to, had to clear up some confusion for ourselves in order to, to do it. But that, I think that did, that did set, uh, kind of set a new standard at the time. What was uh, Tom's feeling about, uh, about this progress as far as in, involving MIDI and, and sort of abandoning some of the other things that you guys were doing? Well, I think... In general, he was he was supportive of all that. I mean, I he uh, yeah he created a good environment to let folks like myself and Michelle Dwadik, who's the co-founder with me in Fast Forward Designs in Line Six, we we met at Oberheim, to really have you know free reign. Um, you know, there was no doubt that what our our passion was for the products. I think all of us, Tom included, would would say wouldn't have hurt if we'd had a little bit more business acumen back then. Um, but, uh, but at least as far as the products and the technology goes, we, we pretty much had free reign. So a product like the Expander, um, you know, Tom was really supportive. We worked closely with Doug Curtis, who's a, a great synthesizer legend that, that sadly passed away in, uh, um, in not that long ago. Um, he uh, designed the, the synthesizer chips that um, in the 80s ended up in virtually every major synthesizer from Dave Smith's to Oberheim's to Roland's and so on. But we'd work with him on next generation chips and how uh, matrix modulation could, could do all kinds of great stuff. And you just, you kind of built what you wanted till it was done and whatever it cost, it cost. And uh, you know, it was a real, it was a real form of creative expression in the tools. You know, we we need to be creative in making great tools, so musicians can be creative in, in using those tools. Very cool. What was your favorite part of the expander? Oh, 
it's too hard to choose. Uh, I think I, the key things for me with the with the expander and then the Matrix Twelve, which was the same uh, same family. Um, one, of course, is the matrix modulation. That's uh, both Michelle and I were really so inspired by the old modular synthesizers and um, uh, you know patch cords or the 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 patch pins of the old EMS synthes. The idea that you could kind of connect anything to anything was just a, it's really a, a hugely powerful creative tool. So that was, uh, that's definitely something I'm real fond of because you, you don't run out of creative choices. You know, I could walk up to an expander today and just start from a clear patch and just start patching things from here to there and you're going to discover new sounds. Um, that and the, the multi-mode filter, I think it was the most versatile filter in an analog synth up to that point. It was, there was 15 different modes, I believe it was, something, something crazy like that, um, uh, for the filter. So you could do, you know, one, two, three, or four pole low pass. You could combine low pass, high pass, notch filters, all pass filters, you know, phase shifters. And that was pretty sophisticated given it was all, all done, the filters were all analog. All the sound generation was still analog. So that was, that's a, a neat part. And it's user interface, kind of, that was, I think, the first big use of, you know, big alphanumeric displays and big panel and... Yeah, the uh, display was pretty impressive. Yeah, yeah, that was, that was fun. I think one of the reasons why MIDI is harder to understand today more than it was when it came out is because it's kind of a given that that would work mm. in today's technology with all computers and everything's digital. It's like, oh yeah, of course I can use my favorite synth or controller with my favorite DAW or favorite program. Like it's just kind of a given, yeah. but during this time it wasn't. Right. And you had all these different things and you wanted them to work together and they didn't and you wanted a language, but it was kind of controversial because it had to go through all of the different companies. Um, so hearing him talk about some of the woes that MIDI have, it was, it's interesting to, to hear the development of that whole process. Absolutely. Good point. Okay. So let's not miss a beat and jump back into the interview with Marcus Ryle. Now did Michelle play a part in the design? Oh yeah. He played a real important part. He, Michelle, so Michelle started at Oberheim, um, just three or four months after I did in 1980. So he was a He's a, a Frenchman who was working at Piano Center in Paris, which was a big music store at the time, and he was like the main technician. And uh, Tom loved France, so he'd, he'd go over to visit his, the Piano Center. That was our distributor as well. And so he'd met Michelle, and Michelle was really quite inventive and was doing all kinds of modifications on Oberheim synthesizers. So Tom invited him over to, to come for a month or six months and you know see what it's like to work at at Oberheim, and uh, in short, he never left. <laughs> he he, uh, he worked through you know from eighty through eighty five like I did, and um, he's a brilliant analog engineer, and uh, you know played a very important role in in the the matrix modulation and the and the the filters and so on. So yeah, that's neat. Yeah. So you stayed how long there at Oberheim? April 19th, uh, 1985 would have been uh, when I left, <laughs> to be exact. And I remember Michelle left a week later. Um, 
you know, it was uh, it had been almost five years for me, and uh, I was really appreciative of the the opportunity and what I'd learned. But I kind of felt I was done with school there, and Oberheim was an awesome school for me. And um, you know, things were uh, I didn't understand the business side of it that much back then, but things were looking a, potentially a little dicey with regard to the business. And um, at the time, I had the the good fortune that I from you know the early 80s to there I had also been working more and more as a session musician and um, was you know recorded with a, a lot of artists and was making good money on the side as a, as a synthesizer player programmer and um, so I could I could afford to to make a change and honestly didn't have any idea exactly what I was going to do but for me it felt right to to make a change and then figure it out, as opposed to go looking for another job. And so, and I just told Tom one day, you know, thanks for everything. I think it's time for me to move on. He was a real gentleman about it. Wished me luck, and and I left. Um, and uh, I certainly didn't know it at the time, but things progressed quite quickly from there. I don't believe I was cause or effect, but um, uh, within five weeks, they filed for bankruptcy. Uh, of, of me leaving and uh, Michelle saw the writing on the wall and uh, he'd left a week after I did and you know uh, when he left uh, I asked him you know you want to do maybe we should do something together and it was really quite I've been I've been told I have a charmed life so a lot of serendipitous things have have occurred for me uh, including meeting Tom in the first place and so on and believe it or not literally the week that Michelle quit. Uh, I think it was. It might have been that day or the day after. I got a call from Joff Farr, and Joff used to be a, a salesman at Oberheim, and he and Woody Moran, another industry veteran, they'd started a company called Europa Technology. They were importing products in the U.S. And believe it or not, back then, you know, it was really economically feasible to import products made in Europe into the U.S. <laughs> and sell them and, and make good business. And they were uh, doing products like the PPG synthesizers, and they were working with a company called Dynacord. And they, Joff called me up out of the blue. He says, you know, we've got these people from Dynacord coming into town, and they think they need to have some, some American designers working on products, you know, because they don't quite get what this American market's about. You want to meet them? Sure, I called up Michelle, and you know, and the two of us went and met these guys, and they said they wanted to do a digital drum product, and um, we said we can do that, and and literally that was how Fast Forward Designs was born, which was what became Line Six, but that was the company in '85. Dynacord was our first client, and Michelle and I, our objective was really quite simple: if we could make a decent living. Essentially, we would have been thrilled if we could just be, get paid what we were being paid at Oberheim, but be able to, you know, explore a broader range of technology than just synthesizers, you know, do design products. And at that time, another key goal was not to manufacture anything, <laughs> given the trouble we saw Oberheim got into when you've got tons of inventory of product. We just, we like designing technology. Let's just design products. Let someone else worry about building it and selling it. This would be a great, a great thing. And lo and behold, Dynacord is instantly there. And uh, for some strange reason, I can't explain. Just like I can't explain why 
Tom Oberheim took a chance on a on a kid. Um, uh, they they basically said, "Okay, go ahead and design it." You know, we basically said, "You know, pay us." I don't know what I said. I said something like, "You know, pay us three thousand dollars or something, and we'll write a proposal." And uh, they said, "Okay," and we. Michelle and I spent the next two weeks. We wrote a proposal, and then they flew us over to Germany, and we showed them the proposal. And um, uh, you know, we didn't have any funding. We didn't have a company, per se. We said, "All right, we can design this. We can have it done in seven months. And here's all the things we need because we don't have anything. We, you know, here's the equipment we need, and and so on." And uh, we said, "You can own all of that stuff, but we can't afford to buy it." So you, you buy all this gear and you pay us, um, I don't remember what the amount, some flat monthly fee. Um, and, and we also want a royalty on the product when it ships. And they said, okay. <laughs> so Michelle and I went back and we just started, uh, started working away, designing what became the, the ad one, or I think in Germany they call it the ADD one. It's a set of, you know, it's drum pads hooked up to a digital drum brain with sample drum sounds, and you could trigger it from the, the pads. And that was our, our first product, which we showed at the Frankfurt 86, um, and uh, kind of grew from there. We did a number of other products for Dynacord, and then in 87 started doing products for Alesis. And yeah, that uh, early on? Yes. Next year? Yeah. Wow. So yeah, in '87, um, I met Keith Barr and Russell Palmer, the, the founders of Alesis, and and Keith wanted to do a sequencer and drum machine, and it was really interesting. I mean, he was aware he and Tom Oberheim had known each other. You know, they're friends again. It's a pretty cordial community, and uh, you know, he thought the Oberheim system way back when, way back in '82, '83. You know, that was pretty cool stuff. But that system is unbelievably expensive. I mean, thinking in 1983 dollars, the the synthesizer, the OBXA, which was one it first worked with, was I think 6,200 dollars, and the drum machine was 2,800 dollars, and the sequencer was another 1,800 dollars or something. I mean, it was like so. For, it was like 10,000 dollars if you could get a deal to have this, you know. This little eight-bit drum machine and eight-voice synthesizer with no velocity sensitivity and a little sequencer. And how it's much like, was a new car at the time? <laughs> a lot less. Yeah, yeah. That's pretty expensive. Yeah, so it was yeah. quite expensive. And at its peak, you know, Oberheim was selling. I remember there were some months we'd sell like 150 of these systems in a month. So it was a it was a big deal. You know, that was uh, it was it was uh, good times, but. <laughs> Definitely out of reach, and I definitely related to that because if I wasn't working at Oberheim, there's no way I could afford this gear. So I felt really fortunate that you know I could use it because I was there. But Keith definitely had a vision, and you could see it through Elise's product line about you know really making stuff accessible to lots of musicians, making it affordable. So he wanted to do a drum machine and sequencer, and uh, he asked me if I would I would uh, do that since I'd done the software before. So Said sure, we can we can put that together, and uh, we did the it was the MMT8 and HR16, which was Elisa's first drum machine and sequencer, which 
I think, shipped in 88 or so. We managed to put it together pretty quickly. Mm. And uh, I don't remember the exact prices, but uh, it was really a leap. Of course, MIDI was around now, so that really opened the doors. You could have a sequencer that could control any synth instead of one that had to be dedicated. So the MMT, I think it was like $300 now for the sequencer, and the drum machine was probably four or $500. So it really took it to a whole new level of affordability, and they sold hundreds of thousands of units. It was unbelievable. Really opened my eyes to how empowering you know, affordable technology could be. Um, and that started our, our relationship with Alesis. We worked with them on over 40 products mm -hmm. from that point. I, I haven't met uh, Keith, but he's a real visionary, isn't he? Absolutely. Keith, uh, Keith was another great mentor for me. He's, um, he's one of the smartest guys I've ever known. Definitely a visionary. Um, is, could be described as eclectic, which is not unusual for someone who's a, a visionary. But um, I really learned a tremendous amount from him, and he would he would really drive us to, you know, to do things better, to figure out a way to make it cheaper, and so on. So to push, kind of push for what seemed like the impossible at the time, and was was the driving force behind the ADAT, which was probably the biggest project we did with Elisa's. Mm -hmm. And um, although we we ended up playing a very large role, you know, our team did did all of the uh, the software. Carol Hotzinger, actually, who still works for us, she did all the software in the ADAT. We designed three and a half of the four custom chips and designed all the, the analog circuitry and servo and, and essentially designed the, the whole user interface, you know, defined what the product is. Um, the, the Keith, uh, first of all, Keith was one of the, that had the, was audacious enough to say, I want to make a digital tape recorder that's uh, affordable. And it started out, you know, we looked at anything from, should we put digital data on a cassette tape? Should we, what should we, you know, use? And then he started exploring videotape and was audacious enough to believe that we could do it. And I'll never forget that for me at that time, you know, in my head, I just imagined there's no way we're going to be able to pull this off. It was so exciting, so unbelievable a concept at that time that you know, we could make for, for $4,000 what was costing people hundreds of thousands of dollars at that time and really give digital audio quality to the masses. I was sure that Sony or Yamaha or one of these big, serious companies, they must have something like this in their back pocket or that we've overlooked some real fundamental technology aspect that we're going to go, oh, that's why it has to cost $100,000. Um, and, but Keith never doubted it at all. It's like, no, no, we can do this. Let's just, let's just work it out, you know? And uh, it was a very, very exciting development, having to make the decisions of everything from, you know, how fast should the drum rotate? How, how wide should the track width be? How, how close we want to space bits together? What's the encoding? What's the error correction? It was really designing all of that stuff from, scratch, defining a new format. And uh, that was, was quite exhilarating. I bet. 
and it was introduced at a, at a NAMM show to a many, of many disbelieving folks. Um, actually, there's a funny story to that history. That would have been, I think, January of 91. January 91, we showed it. We had the prototypes just barely working, but we had a bug in the error correction. So every once in a while, basically, we couldn't use the error correction. Um, and uh, error correction is crucial in, in any you know, tape storage. Um, but uh, the system was actually working so well that without the error correction, it would play audio nearly perfectly. But every once in a while, you get a little tick or something where you know, the data wasn't right. And we decided, you know, we can't play this for anyone. They're just, we're just going to have to show them the product. We'll tell them what it is. We're not going to play it for anyone because it's just not, not quite ready. And um, so that, understandably, there were plenty of disbelievers. Because at that time, what we'd done with Elise as well, there's a sequencer drum machine. We'd done the Quadroverb, which was a successful effects unit. But you know, this company making things that cost a few hundred dollars, and here's this $4,000 digital tape recorder. In many ways, it just didn't make sense. Um, and on top of that, uh, some of the competitors who had good reason to worry, like Tascam, they started spreading rumors, said there's no way that JVC and Matsushita is going to allow them to do it. And that's because JVC and Matsushita had a number of patents on the VHS technology, and they really controlled who could do VHS. And, um, you know, they were convinced, like, that's, that's nice, but even if it works, there's no way they're going to be able to do it. And this would be another thing I give uh, Keith credit for is, you know, again, he was, he was bold enough to decide we're just not going to worry about that. Investing millions of dollars, doing all this development, just don't worry about it. And uh, that, was, that was a crucial decision. The ADAT wouldn't have been possible without the decision because what happened is we actually got the ADAT done. And then Keith and I had a meeting with the intellectual property uh, department of JVC and Matsushita. And they'd come into LA and we went to the, you know, the big lawyer's office, the big boardroom and everything, and they come in and, and you know, introduce ourselves. You know, it's this little company, Alesis, and, and uh, we've got something to show you. And we put the ADAT on the table and we took the lid off and we demonstrated it fully functional. And uh, I, I think they were honestly stunned that we had done this. So instead of having to go through all the questions of, you know, if we'd been there at the beginning of, you know, are you serious? How, how are you going to pull that off? You know, you're going to have to just make all these decisions. This is a hugely different design than video and, and everything. You know, there'd be plenty of reasons for them to just say, we're not interested. Plus, it's this tiny market and, you know, VHS, that was a big deal in consumer electronics. But instead, they saw this completely finished product. This completely works. This is done. I'm going to show you what it does. We're playing these great audio tracks. And it instead turned to these technical questions like, so what, what speed are you rotating the drum at? And what's your track pitch? And, and how, did you, how did you get different heads in there? Then uh, you know, and uh, how you know? Tell us about your rotary transformer, and um, you know, they they basically said yes on the spot that you know we can work this out. I mean, obviously the lawyers had to work out the legal stuff, and they did get a royalty every ADAT. And actually, JVC and Masusha they made millions of dollars off of ADATs. 
Um, but the ADAT came out, so that's what counted. Boy, that was a clever move on Keith's part. Yeah, huh? yeah, really was. Ballsy. <laughs> but it was his company, you know. He could he could make uh, make that sort of decision. But that's uh, I definitely credit Keith a lot, and being able to experience that and learn from him and that sort of stuff that's really helped helped me and in, in uh, how I've moved forward in business and realized that you know some risks are are definitely worth taking. Now, Michelle was also uh, part of that whole process as yeah. well, right? Yeah, Michelle was involved in the in the design of, of ADAT. Uh, he did, you know, largely worked on the, the servo and analog side. I worked mainly on the, the digital side and the defining the, uh, you know, defining the product. You know, I, as much as I was involved in the technology, that's probably what I'm most proud of is that really embodying the whole concept of trying to make technology accessible. Mm -hmm. It'd be real easy with a new technology like a digital tape recorder for it to have all kinds of different bells and whistles and features. And I was determined to make it something that that anyone who'd ever used a tape recorder should be able to use this. And there were only two buttons on it that were any different than using a Fostex or Tascam reel-to-reel multi-track, which was format, because you had to format a tape, and digital in, because it was first time there was also digital in as well as analog. Um, so that, uh, I'm, I'm quite proud of that. That and the, the concept and technology of how we've designed it to be able to interconnect oh, yeah. multiple machines, that you could just take this nine pin cable and, and you could synchronize 16 tape decks and they'd be synchronized within, you know, like 200, you know, microseconds. It was, it was really, uh, it was really great, great stuff. Um, and uh, and the optical interface, which we we co-invented with Alesis as well, which allowed the digital audio to 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 go through. So yeah, that was that was fun. Yeah, but Michelle was involved in in all that and and all the products. We had a pretty natural division where where he would he definitely had more experience than I in in analog. I was more. Uh, more involved in in digital logic, and we both do software. We, you know, we had a, a lot of overlap as well, and uh, just managed to divide and conquer whatever the technology problem was. And we had a you know quickly built a great team of engineers. Fast Forward Designs had uh, um, we for we were designing products for other companies for about ten years. In the end, we we were a team of about eleven people. Uh, most of which who still still are with us today, some great, great engineers. So it was really nice to hear Marcus talking about some of the people that he's had an opportunity to work with, including Keith Barr and Michelle Doidick. It's amazing. I mean, those uh, those three minds together is kind of crazy to think about. Um, and of course, we lost uh, Keith rather very young, and yet his contribution to the industry still remains. Um, and I really appreciate the uh, the thoughts that Marcus had about that. Um, you know, kind of amazing technology coming together with these guys saying, well, you know, with this VHS tape, we can actually do something that nobody's ever thought to do with audio. Um, I know that's the simple version, but I mean, it's amazing how just that that thing that was in front of them or in front of all of us really revolutionized the music industry. And I, I just, 
I'm in awe of that often when I think about it. Uh, Mark is just an amazing guy, and I would uh, encourage you guys to um, check out some of the other interviews that we've done, not only associated with um, ADAT, but uh, MIDI and some of the other folks that we're talking about today. Tom Oberheim is another one that we've been able to interview over the years. So uh, please check out those web clips. Yeah, if you'd like to see any of those, you can head over to nam.org, N-A-M-M.org slash library, and we have all of our interviews and web clips there. Okay, so let's get back to uh, Marcus's interview and uh, the story about Fast Forward. Now, Fast Forward was the name of the um, consulting sort of business that you right. started? So in 85, basically, Michelle and I, uh, you know, had this idea, we, can we be these technical guys designing products for other other folks? And uh, my wife was actually involved from the beginning as well, Susan Wolf. She's the one who came up with the name, in fact, Fast Forward Designs. And uh, um, she basically handled for us everything that was, was non-technical and still works at Line 6 today, has managed our you know personnel and facilities and everything um, through that entire growth. So. You know, what started out really just the, the three of us had grown to about 11 people by 1994 or so. And in a sense, you could say, you know, with 40 some on products with Alesis, with we'd done the whole sample cell series of products with Digidesign, we'd done MIDI lighting controllers, we'd done some pretty exciting wide range of, of products. Um, we kind of, we kind of felt that now we were kind of ready to graduate from that school too. And I um, was really interested in, in seeing where, where things could go with us doing our own products. And that's, you know, essentially then when Line 6 began. Um, and what was the premise behind that? Did you have a product in mind when you launched it? So what we're thinking is, um, yeah, we, we just were so excited about how technology had really changed what musicians can do. You know, it... Um, it democratized music making, right? You could now have a project studio um, reasonably affordable in your home and make something that sounded amazing, right? It could sound like you've made it in a professional studio. With the ADAT and at that time you, know, you had Mackie mixers had really come on the scene strong. You could have a Mackie board and an ADAT and some, some monitors and a couple mic stuff and you were, you were good to go. And we were doing synthesizers tape recorders, effects processors, drum machines. We had all these pieces. And it really it really stunned us how it seemed the guitar player was being left behind when it came to all these technological advantages, right? So I'm I'm personally a, a really terrible guitar player. That's the, the true confessions. I play bass okay. I'm primarily a keyboard player. Um, but just consider myself a, a musician and someone always into to sound and tone. And it's, as a keyboard player, I get to have all these great advantages, right? You can push a button and have pretty much any sound at your disposal now. You've got MIDI, you've got all these synths, you know, and, uh, and guitar players, there were some great tones, but every, you know, guitar player I'd work with like, well, so how many amps and pedals and guitars are required? And then you'd say, well, you know, it'd be great if you could just do this sound. It's like, well, no, I don't have that pedal with me or, you know, I got to change my whole rig to to do that, um, you know, not to mention all the problems of, you know, miking up guitar amps trying to capture them recording-wise. It just, there just seemed to be a, a hole there. 
And uh, so it started out as a, a research project because clearly we, we, we recognize if, if you could replicate how a guitar signal gets processed through tubes and analog circuitry, because it really is, it's a processor. An electric guitar is, is a voltage coming out and the voltage that finally gets to a speaker is now different. So the voltage is the signal, it's processed. I mean, it sounds kind of cold and clinical for how warm and beautiful, uh, you know, tube amps and effects sound, but it is, it is a process, it can be analyzed. So it was it started as a research project and uh, Michelle, we were able to carve out some time for Michelle to just take some time looking at just can we digitally emulate a, uh, a single vacuum tube? Let's do some experiments and let's kind of do that on our own dime while we're still doing products for other people. And uh, because we had no idea what the outcome might be. And I discovered a, um, a new DSP chip at the time. It was from TI Japan, actually, that for the first time seemed like it have enough power and be affordable enough to be able to get done what be needed in a guitar amp. There was many more times the processing power of what we had like in a quadriverb, which at that time with Alesis, you know, we'd have to design custom chips to do the DSP because there just wasn't stuff readily available. So this seemed interesting. It could be a chip we could buy off the shelf that was pretty powerful, not so powerful by today's standards, but for, you know, 94 or so when, when we found out about it, it was pretty good. So Michelle started doing his experiments and it looked like things were possible and uh, we got excited about it and we kind of kept experimenting from there and we, we had put some more engineers on the, on the project and uh, started to, to grow the team. And, um, and before too long, January NAM of uh, 96, down in Hall E, you know, the dungeon where where the new companies get started, uh, we showed our first prototype of the Axis 212, the world's first digital modeling amp. And uh, Line 6 was born. Now, what, where did the name come from? Well, so the name actually relates a little indirectly to the fact that this was kind of this secret skunk works project of ours, right? We didn't necessarily know um, if this would turn into a product, <clears throat> we didn't necessarily know if it was something, maybe it'd be better suited for another, another company, but we, it was something we wanted to develop independently. So, you know, separate part of the lab and, and so on. And, uh, but to, to do the experiments and as we started developing the modeling, we had to bring in, you know, these great classic amps and to make a great, you know, Marshall's sound like it's supposed to, you gotta crank it way up and you're doing measurements. So there's, in the back of the building would be these, you know, loud blaring guitars. And um, we realized that this would be, would certainly raise some eyebrows or curiosity for some of our clients if they came to the office to, to visit us. So if someone from Elisis or whatever was coming over. And we just, since we didn't know what the outcome of this would be, we just wanted to, keep it our own, it's our own little pet project. So we knew we needed people to, to stop playing guitar when someone from the outside would come over. So before we even had any thoughts about what's a company name, we, we needed a way to, to tell people to stop playing guitar without saying, hey, stop playing guitar. So Fast Forward Designs had five phone lines. 
So the receptionist, when someone would come to the front, would nonchalantly, you know, they'd see someone walking in without it referencing the person coming in, would simply get on the, the phone PA and page one of us and tell us we had a call on line six. Since there was no line six, that was the code to say, stop playing guitar, there's visitors here, just put the stuff away and, and, and there you go. So that's where the term line six actually came from. Then of course, many, many months later, you know, our development progresses, we, we actually realize we have a product, we're real excited about being able to do an amp, and now we want to have a name for, uh, we needed a brand name, we didn't want it to be called a fast forward designs product. And we were still doing consulting for other companies. In a sense, we were just another client for our, we were a client of our, of our own, and we needed a brand name. And we went through the process like, like most bands do of coming up with a name, and it's just, it's crazy trying to come up with a name. And I know for me, I only had two real requirements that I wanted. I wanted it to be two syllables because there were just so many great companies I admired that just had nice, simple two-syllable name, you know, Sony, you know, Roland, you know. And I also wanted it not to be descriptive because if, uh, you know, if it, that can pigeonhole a company. As an aside, you know, Digidesign, you may or may not know, they started out, their company was called Digidrums. Peter Gocher and Evan Brooks, they were doing drum chips for Lynn Drums and Oberheim drum machines. That's when I first met Peter back in the Oberheim days. It was called Digidrums because they were doing drum chips. And they obviously quickly recognized, well, that's kind of limiting, you know, and became Digidesign. So we really wanted something not limiting. So it's a very long story, but after going through 50 or so names, um, you know, and not being satisfied with, with any of them. Someone ultimately just said, why not line six? I said, yeah, it's as good as anything, you know? I mean, we realized that the products and who we are is really going to define what that means over time, right? I mean, what does Sony mean? You know, it's just a name, but it, it develops its own personality and image based on the products and actions of the company. So it's just a name, that's its origins, and hopefully now it's, uh, it has some meaning for people. Very cool. One last question before I right. get you out of here. Um, when you were doing your uh, studio stuff, any, any particular favorite recordings that you're on that... Uh... Well, um, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I feel real fortunate, you know, I, first, I just a little story. I had the, I think, the good sense, uh, fortunately, to make the decision early on that I really didn't want to depend on studio work as my primary source of income, um, and uh, which I'm, I'm very glad about now. And ironically, I think that played a big role in me having the good fortune of being able to work with a lot of great artists. Because when you are, there's a ton of incredible musicians and synthesizer players in LA. I was by no means a standout. But um, I never felt I was auditioning for my next gig for each session I would do, which a lot of other folks had to do. They were depending on it for their livelihood. And in fact, while I was doing sessions at Oberheim, I'd have to turn down a lot of gigs because I didn't want to miss my day job. It's like, well, no, I can't come Wednesday afternoon if you've, I'm open Thursday night if you want. 
So my kind of lack of availability and potentially my nonchalant attitude about doing sessions, you know, before I knew it, I'm getting calls from Quincy Jones and David Foster and Michael Amardian and Jay Graydon and, I mean, all these great producers and John Farah. And, and uh, so it was really, it was really uh, an amazing time for me and was so perfectly connected to my job and another reason I would probably get called. I would, I did probably know how to use the synthesizers better than most anyone at the time, including the competitors' synthesizers. So I could get any sound people wanted. But I'd be able to learn so much about how products are really being used. So I got to work uh, with Barbara Streisand on the Somewhere from the Broadway album. Uh, did some synth sounds for We Are the World. Um, Chicago 17 was really nice to work on. Um, wow. I don't know, there's Fun. It was good, a good list of of, uh, of stuff. It was it was good fun, <laughs> and unfortunately, a lot of uh, a lot of those folks are you know the the producers are are still good friends. You know they were all great mentors as well. What synth did you use on We Are the World? Oh, that's a long time ago. Uh, it was, um, it was only I helped. Years ago. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I helped. There were a lot of synthesizer players. I was, Oh, really? My part was was very small, and I didn't actually I didn't play on it. I helped set up the I believe it was the bass synth. It's really funny. You get there was like a period of six months where I kind of was known as the the bass synth guy because <laughs> people would it's a classic synthesizer problem that people didn't seem to understand. You know, they'd get a cool sound, but they'd have multiple oscillators beating and drive the engineers crazy to see the VU meter going from clipping to near nothing as the oscillators would cancel out. They like liked that sound, but they couldn't control it, and so, I, you know, I could get them a, a good bass sound that didn't have those problems. So I remember that Quincy and uh, Umberto Gatica, the engineering company, said like, he should come down and do a bass sound. I think I had to take a long lunch that day. It was because it was just at Lionsgate Studio, and I was at Oberheim. I asked Tom, you know, can I go down? They're doing this, this record's kind of important, I want to help out. <laughs> and uh, he's like, sure. So um, I probably, it was some combination of stuff. I was using, uh, it was probably an Akai S900 sampler midied with uh, uh, a Matrix 12. That's my guess. I, I don't remember. <laughs> but you know, I'd use some sampled sounds layered with the synths so you could get a repeatable, um, uh, sound that you could guarantee the cycle of the oscillators were in a particular phase when when the note was triggered so you wouldn't have these notes that would drop out. You know, someone would be playing a bass line and if you hit the note right when the oscillators are canceling, it didn't sound so good. Uh, so it was, it was something like that. Uh, <laughs> well, I really appreciate your time, Marcus. Thank you so much for taking it. My pleasure. So that concludes our full interview with Marcus Ryle from 2007. Uh, thank you so much for listening today. It was very exciting to hear one of the great innovators of the music products industry talking all about how he got into the industry and some of his developments. And uh, we hope that you stick around in two weeks when we come back with a new episode. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Music History Project. This has been Mike Mullins. Michelle Shedler. And Dan Del Fiorentino. 
If you like what you heard today, please subscribe on iTunes and leave us some feedback. If you have recommendations for future episodes, you can send those over to library at nam.org.